Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, this is Sharon Salzberg. For this episode of the Meta Hour, we thought we would rebroadcast an interview I did with Rhonda McGee in September of 2018 about her book, which was just about to come out, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. It's a fantastic book, and she's a fantastic person, and it seemed like it would be an appropriate time and a really useful time to replay this interview. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm so happy today to be speaking with my friend and colleague, Rhonda McGee. Rhonda is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco and is an internationally recognized thought and practice leader on integrating mindfulness into higher ed, law, and social justice. She's a past president of the board of the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society. Rhonda is a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute. She's a member of the board of advisors of the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness and the board of directors for the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. So welcome, Rhonda. Oh, thank you so much, Sharon. It's it's wonderful to be in conversation with you today. It's so great. I mean, I, I sort of, we were, in the, we were at the Garrison Institute at the same time, I went up for a, a day-long board meeting because I'm on that board, and, and you were mm-hmm. uh, in the faculty of um, the Summer Research Institute. Yes, that's right. Just a few short weeks ago, it seems now. Yeah, so I knew you were there. <laughs> yes. And something I didn't you know, really get to talk in the introduction about is um, your book. So uh, yeah. I know this podcast will come out probably... Um, quite some time before your book actually hits the market, but I'm determined to play it again, you know, so (laughs) just when it comes out. Well, I'm very excited because I've heard you do a few presentations in different places and uh, sometimes in a time where society is just reeling, you know, or sensitive peeling people and sensitive people in society are just reeling because uh, there's so much violence, there's so much fear, there's so much, reaction. Uh, and you've just been amazing. Mm, oh, thank you so much. And I, I I hear what you're saying. And of course, just to hear that description of what, what we're dealing with, what we're sort of collectively and individually in this, you know, one community within many other communities, we're all kind of up against the wall of some sort right now. I think it's a very, uh, it's a challenging time for many of us. And, um, you know, for me, uh, it's been a, a, a kind of a reminder of just how much I rely on my own daily practice. Mm-hmm. Um, really. So for me, these times are both, you know, it's sort of like a, 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 a gift in the midst of, um, of, of the turmoil is to be reminded that we have been fortunate enough Somehow, you know, the two of us and mm-hmm. perhaps many of those on the call, if not all those on the call, we've somehow been fortunate enough to find 
some way of being with what is is arising, what we're up against, so to speak, um, that enables us to kind of roll on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what they call resilience arises somehow, yeah, or yeah. you know, just being able to stand <laughs> another day um, after wave after wave of of you know of, of being present to. Mm-hmm. The violence, the pain, um, the suffering that so many people are are living with in these times. Uh, I'm curious, what first brought you to the path of mindfulness? Uh, yeah, so you know, often when I think about answering this question, um, mm-hmm. I have like many different ways I could answer. One is to say that, in a certain sense, I feel like I was sort of born on the path mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I was one of those kinds of kids that always that sort of um, just had a natural gravitation towards silence and toward um, reflection. And somehow, uh, I mean, I have, you know, vague memories of just being a very, very little girl, even in the playpen type of thing that we had, and I had in my home, just sort of being aware and being somehow aware that, uh, that there was more than this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how I have words for that. And as a little girl, being one of those types of kids who would, you know, watch the clouds in the sky and um, really appreciate uh, the sense that um, the, the sort of multi-dimensionality, dimensionality of, of experience was something that I think I had access to from very early on. I also grew up in a home where... Um, a kind of Christian um, religious mm-hmm. practice was very, very present. And so I actually had a grandmother who had been called to the ministry. Mm-hmm. And during um, the first few years of my life, when my um, parents were having some problems and their marriage was ultimately going, headed toward breaking up, I actually spent a fair amount of time with my grandmother, mm-hmm. uh, including waking up mornings and realizing that she was already up usually uh, or every day, really, that I recall, and um, there would be this light emanating from the door of her bedroom, and I, you know, had learned we don't interrupt her during that mm. period when she's still in that bedroom, and she would come out uh, and continue a period. We, I later learned she had been praying and um, reflecting, um, centering, centering herself uh, in in her own kind of um, contemplative practice. Um, again, Christian based, uh, and just to see that she had this kind of disciplined way of centering herself every day. And from there, she would come out of the room. And often, if she had time, um, in most days, she would have some time to do some reading. So a different kind of discipline, the allied discipline of meditation, the sort of study, she would be reading the Bible. Um, and then from there, she would, you know, make sure the rest of the family was awakened, um, prepare breakfast, get mm-hmm. us all up and running, off and running to school. And then she went off to work. She, like a lot of African-American women, you know, um, from generations and generations ago, um, had to work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so she, she modeled or embodied, I would say, um, a certain kind of awareness practice, um, uh, commitment to awareness practice for life. Um, that stuck with me in some profound ways so that later when I was in my own um, period of transition had uh, 
moved from the South where I grew up out to the West Coast to California after graduating from law school and studying sociology at the graduate level and having been an army officer and done mm. a lot of things by my mid-20s. But I had not found a way to kind of regularly reconnect with um, a deeper sense of myself. Mm. So out here in San Francisco, I actually just started um, looking for a kind of support, something that I felt would maybe be akin to what my grandmother had. But at that point, I was I was really interested in um, a way of um, accessing my own inner resources mm-hmm. that would specifically help me work with my mind as opposed to um, the kind of particular ways that I had been um, uh, introduced to Christianity. So I was really open to the idea of some sort of practice for calming the mind because I realized I had been this kind of traditional student for a very long time, studying and thinking and being very um, focused in the, you know, on the thoughts really. Uh, And so uh, when I realized I couldn't really relax, like I couldn't let go of thinking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I finished law school when I had this little period between starting to practice law and having taken the bar and other people took trips and did other things. And, but I was, you know, so focused on um, being concentrated on the mind that I realized I had a real trouble even relaxing, even letting go. So that that's really knowing that and knowing that I was about to start practicing law. And I kind of mm-hmm. felt like if I hadn't found a way to make myself um, better able to, to be my own best resource for dealing with anxiety and stress, um, then I would have a really hard time moving now into, you know, practicing law. So I, I started looking for some deeper support. And that's how I began the um, exploration of, of of what I later learned to be mindfulness practices. But, mm-hmm. you know, started reading uh, various different texts, um, a lawyer, being trained as a lawyer and a person who had been in graduate school reading first mm-hmm. was often, mm-hmm. you know, the way I did it. So I had found I found the teacher's um, writings on um, Hindu practices of meditation, Eknath Esthoran, who's a teacher out mm-hmm. here in the Bay Area, and he'd written a beautiful uh, book on the Bhagavad Gita. And so I basically explored a number of different um, writings about these traditions, um, some of the teachings of the Buddha, uh, as well as others. And eventually started, um, you know, visiting um, uh, meditation halls and centers and and ultimately found my way to um, a sangha of lawyers here in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. a small group of lawyers, which was fortunate to have um, Norman Fisher as our teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's really and that's when I really started to settle and focus and really uh, benefit from the support of a regular practice community, um, with Norman certainly being uh, a Zen priest, mm-hmm. Zen um, a master teacher, um, but also someone who drew on his own background, having been raised in the Jewish um, tradition and heritage. Um, and by the time he, I joined his group, he had left the San Francisco Zen Center and had founded his Everyday Zen organization, mm-hmm. So, which was very focused on helping support bringing uh, the practice into the world. Mm-hmm. So for me, that by then, it was the early 2000s. And, um, but that was 
that was what got me more deeply um, settled into a regular practice with the regular uh, teaching and practice community. And when did you meet John Kabat-Zinn? So I met John um, in the later 2000s. And by the time I met John, I actually already begun offering um, meditation to lawyers and had um, started, was one of the early um, members of the uh, Legal Academy. Because by then I was teaching law at the University of San Francisco and I had had been supported by my my lawyer sangha, Norman Fisher's um, little uh, group. Mm -hmm. We had all sort of decided and been encouraged by Norman to begin taking the practices into the world that we saw, the suffering that we saw. Mm -hmm. Some of us were lawyers, some still. Others were like me, law professors, and some were judges. But we were um, encouraged to actually start where we were, um, offering meditation um, in different ways. So we, we we started offering retreats for lawyers. Some of us, those of us who were teaching at law schools, started offering these classes in the law school. And so um, because of that work, uh, somehow I met um, the guys behind Mindful Magazine, oh, yeah. which hadn't launched yet, right? They mm-hmm. hadn't quite launched, but um, um, yes, uh, Jim Gimmion mm-hmm. and and the entire team behind Mindful, um, the editorial team were folks that uh, somehow found me in the work that I was doing. And I ended up meeting John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santorelli um, at an event uh, put on by uh, the team behind Mindful uh, in New York City. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 2009 or mm-hmm. 10 or so. And it was an event that was specifically uh, aimed at showcasing the different ways that people were already bringing mindfulness mm-hmm. to bear on the problems of everyday life. And so, yeah, I met him and Saki and I, and I just had this wonderful sense of meeting people that I somehow had a deep resonance with. And I was, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I really didn't, hadn't heard very much about MBSR before Mm -hmm. then. And so here we were, you know, (laughs) trying to translate uh, Buddhist teachings into something that would be a benefit to lawyers and different people. And to find that John had already so beautifully done this. Um, starting where he was in um, at UMass, helping um, people who were suffering with physical pain mm-hmm, originally, mm-hmm. Um, but really then helping support bringing mindfulness into the medical profession. I mean, it was just like, okay, all right, I do, we do not have to absolutely reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just felt like a really um, beautiful meeting of um, of sort of you know people who are already in uh, sort of in community or communing around the same kinds of work. And Mm -hmm. so I then decided, yes, let me go ahead and take an MBSR class. And that led me to doing teacher training through the Oasis Institute Mm -hmm. um, at the the University of of Massachusetts uh, Center for Mindfulness um, with John directly, but also with a number of different really excellent teachers um, through the Center for Mindfulness and and th- and through that, really developing um, a particular um, set of practices in a community, uh, now an international community of people who were really trying to continue this this journey of translating the deep traditions of of the Buddhist teachings, the teachings of the Buddha, 
um, making them accessible as broadly and as widely as possible as as human practices for well-being mm. and sanity. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I see. You know, it's funny, like, um, it seems to me like when, when Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and I uh, came back from Asia, Joseph and I from India, Jack from Thailand, mm-hmm. it was 1974. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, <laughs> a million years ago. And then when, you know, so when we began teaching, which was right away, um, either the, the very first teaching was through Naropa Institute, and then we started getting invited to do retreats and the retreats were first retreat Joseph and I did was a month long. And then they were maybe 10 days long or two weeks long. It was always changing, but it was just open. Whoever signed up, we'd be like so grateful. Somebody signed up. (laughs) There weren't many, but there were some and and there were enough to keep us going. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but everything was like, whoever showed up was there and we never Mm -hmm. knew really, you know, what they did for a living or anything, you know, unless we happened to know them. Um, and then, uh, as the years went by and things got just a little more, um, every now and then we'd get an invitation for a certain population, you know, it wasn't just mm-hmm. a general open thing. And right. the, the first wave was all lawyers or law students. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we had a program at Yale Law School. We had a program at yeah. Columbia. We had, uh, different law firms. We had. And I just wondered why now, of course, you know, there are journals and there's your work and there's, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, it feels like such a, a prominent offering compared to mm-hmm. other professions, perhaps. And, yes, you know, yes, now there's yes. a movement to try to bring mindfulness to medical school and things like that. But, mm-hmm. um, and I always wondered why. And so I've asked different lawyers, you know, like, <laughs> why do you think that law, the legal profession was like, were the pioneers, you know, and I've heard everything from because we suffer a lot. Yes, um, exactly. too, you know, we spend all day long in disputes, you know, uh-huh. we need to like, <laughs> we need to relax. So what do you think? Yeah, I think it's probably all of the above and more. Um, there, you know, it is, it absolutely is true that, um, that, that there's a lot of suffering in, you know, in the practice of law, I teach law students, so I see it starts pretty soon. Like mm-hmm. as soon as they come mm-hmm. to the profession, as soon as they come to law school, um, the way we teach law is still, um, you know, tied to traditional ways we've been teaching law for over a hundred years. And we, you know, studies have shown that some, you know, while the the things that we do to train people for um, everyday practice um, in the core competencies of lawyering, you know. Um, Arguing, analyzing things from a a perspective that's very, um, uh, you know, sort of very uh, framed around a certain set of inquiries and, and things that are relevant and things that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way we train lawyers to think and to kind of um, be in the world can be for many, 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 many people. Um, while on the one hand, again, useful in the world, we know it, it sort of opens doors for people who've been wanting certain types of opportunities and wanting to be able to engage in that kind of discourse. But on the other hand, it's also very alienating for a lot mm-hmm. of people. You know, people feel start to feel like they've lost their own sense of their values. They can argue one way, argue the other way. The the question of what um, what really is meaningful uh, to us as individuals inhabiting that role of of advocate mouthpiece, if you will, um, it becomes a little lost. And you find that. I find that in students. I found that in myself, first mm-hmm. of all, as a law student. 
Um, I went into te- uh, pre- um, studying law, having been um, a, a PhD student or heading toward my PhD in sociology. Mm-hmm. So I went from, you know, studying in a certain kind of way, humanistic, kind of looking at um, how people behave together and, you know, looking at the, the socially embedded mind and um, how in particular we try and resolve conflicts, which is how I ended up going into law school. I kind of was curious about how people resolve conflict. Mm-hmm. And one of my professors said, oh, you'd be a perfect candidate. Why don't you just go to law school? And then you can, you know, bring the sociology to it and bring, you know, teach them either, either types of um, programs or disciplines. <clears throat> so, but from that experience of moving from um, graduate school in sociology to law, mm-hmm. I could really see a radically different way that, um, that the legal profession oriented, um, socialized its members and the, and the sort of way in which that would often cause us to sort of shut down important parts of ourselves. Our emotional awareness, for example, would often not be what was mm-hmm. seen to be most valuable. Our capacity to, um, again, to reflect on what we knew from our own personal experience. Instead, we were treated as very fungible, kind of, you'll just learn how to analyze these cases and how to write and think and argue like lawyers. So, the, so, so uh, my own experience is resonant with what a lot of research has shown, which is that the way we train lawyers um, is, is part of what I think uh, causes a certain kind of suffering that makes us... Um, you know, sort of look for ways uh, to 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 ground ourselves, to heal ourselves, to mm-hmm. address that suffering. And there's a lot of dysfunctional ways we look for it, right? So there's a lot of research that shows that as compared to other professions, those in law have really high rates of dysfunctionality of mm-hmm. um, everything from uh, higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse mm-hmm. to difficulty in relationships, high rates of divorce. Um, and and recently, um, sort of alarmingly higher rates of suicide, mm, or mm. at least the suicide ideation. So, so there's a there is a lot of suffering in the in the field, mm. um, and it starts early. It, you know, it it there may be some way that people are oriented toward law, um, but we certainly you know certain types are drawn to law, but certainly there's something that happens as we're socialized into the profession. That does, I think, create, um, you know, varying degrees of, of, of pain, even as we're developing mm-hmm. the skills for the work. And so that's, I think, a very big part of it. But we're also engaging with people who are in many ways um, going through distress. Yeah. And if it's the distress of something exciting, like starting a business, it's often the distress of, especially in these times, families being separated mm-hmm. through immigration policies and laws um, that are that we're called in uh, to, to help um, sort of navigate um, and you know the pain of divorce and mm-hmm. families who are separating and um, criminal processes that are disproportionately impacting some communities versus mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. Um, particularly communities of color and, and and poor people all over the country mm-hmm. So there's a, a that's another piece of it that you you know very very quickly 
just as you're getting socialized not to even pay attention to your emotions, to think like a lawyer, to analyze using the brain um, as much as possible, you're getting socialized so that you later learn that to be effective, you have to have emotional intelligence. You have to be relationally aware. But it's not something that's often taught right at the front end of traditional legal you know, law. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, while you're learning the kind of traditional uh, methods for, for, for becoming a lawyer, you're being thrown in to, you know, humanity at its most... Um, you know, challenged. Mm -hmm. And so I often have law students who talk about coming in and being excited and, you know, getting into a clinic to help with divorce or or the death penalty cases that are, um, you know, trying our souls all over the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And they get into that work and then they, they find, we find, students find, they don't have the resources to support sustaining Mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. face of all that they encounter there. And so that's another reason why I think, um, you know, once you're really standing alongside a condemned person mm. or, you know, someone who, or and their family members and mm-hmm. having to be the person to translate and, and stand with the family after the person's been put to death, which some young law students actually have had experience with in clinics at schools like mine. Or if you're right there trying to help a young woman uh, leave an abusive relationship, mm-hmm. filing for separation orders, a divorce, restraining order, feeling like you're doing something really good and, and meaningful to help someone get free who's been, um, by her own testimony, abused, let's say. And then, as happened not too long ago in a school that I'm familiar with, to have that uh, young woman um, to have the, the class, the clinic file papers for separation and temporary restraining order on Friday and come back to school on Monday and learn that the the woman has been uh, murdered mm. by mm. her her partner who 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 got those papers and 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 reacted violently. Mm-hmm. So this is what people in law face from very early on, and um, we're often not well equipped for it. So I, I am not surprised at mm. all uh, that we are, um, we have done things like develop courses and brought them into the legal law school curriculum that support bringing in um, emotional awareness, relational awareness, compassion practice, empathy practice, um, right into the curriculum for law school, at law school, but then continuing it through um, many different ways that lawyers now, through continuing legal education, is available at the different bars, whether it's New York or California or Texas or North Carolina, right? All across the country, there are opportunities for lawyers to, to learn um, skills like meditation and, and compassion practice, gratitude practice, but different ways of helping um, sustain themselves in the practice. And so, yeah, we've, we, we've managed over the years to turn outside of the traditional curriculum, add to that traditional curriculum, this, these, this, these skills and these practices that we've learned from the curriculum of life, if you will, and from the wisdom traditions that we've been fortunate enough to encounter. Um, so that bringing mindfulness into the spaces where we learn and practice law has become a bit more normal. Mm-hmm. Still not so normal <laughs> that, you know, it's easy, but it's a lot. It's a lot easier than it was today to introduce these practices than it was, 
even 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, yeah. So do you, is part of the curriculum um, learning about vicarious trauma and stress reactions mm-hmm. and things like that? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, we are definitely teaching our students about um, stress and um, stress reactivity and response. Um, so bringing in um, the some of the some of the resources and research around um, the science of, of the mind, the body, neurobiology, neuroscience. Um, so that's a part of uh, the work that I and others do uh, in bringing classes uh, and, and workshops uh, to lawyers, sort of so teaching more about the, the way the body reacts and responds to stress and to trauma. I think the trauma-informed piece is um, – a more recent body of knowledge that's being brought to bear. But certainly um, it's something that people are incorporating because, again, we realize the kinds of suffering that we've seen primary or secondarily um, mm. definitely amounts to what can be called trauma. Um, and and helping lawyers to be able to to withstand the traumas that we see up close um, and have to see again and again and again over a period of time is we find just a really important way of helping maintain those resources in communities because if the lawyers are getting burned out at great numbers and rates, which they they do, um, then we know the community resources aren't going to be available when, mm-hmm. when, when needed most. It's, it's fascinating to me because I mean, I guess there's an underlying question of how much the law has to do with justice. But when oh, you yeah. when you say you teach compassion, <laughs> when you say you teach compassion meditation, uh, or compassion, and and I assume methodologies mm-hmm. yes. for yes. for helping yes. sustain it, you know, um, in kind of common conversation, uh, you almost hear those two as oppositional. There's compassion, or there's justice, <laughs> and they can't be both, you know. And and yet you're sitting right in the heart of the mix. Yeah. So it does, it it raises the question of what we really mean by justice. I mean, there are many, many, many different ways we think about it. And I will say for me, um, you know, I, I am drawn to ways of thinking about justice that, that do depart from some of our more um, dominant constructions, the way we see, Justice portrayed on television and mm-hmm. in the in the movies, the adversarial model, um, the kind of um, retributive, right, punitive for, uh, approach. That is one way that we construct justice. But actually, holistic models for restorative justice are mm-hmm. also on the rise in our system. So, ways of recognizing that when harm has been done in the community setting, what we call crime or we call in um, the field that I teach in torts, personal injury law. When somebody has been harmed, um, restorative justice recognizes that that person, the person who is charged as perpetrator or the person who's charged with being most responsible, you know, that person comes from a community and will return, ideally, um, will at some point return to a community. And so recognizing um, the, 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 the desirability of making connections between um, the so-called perpetrator, 
the person who's been harmed, and the larger community setting within which the whole of it arose um, is really at the heart of what restorative justice is about. It's the idea that you're ideally wanting to restore um, the status quo before the injury. And that's a very different model for justice than the adversarial, the punitive, the retributive model that's been the dominant model in our in our country and in many parts of the world for, you know, since since the um, the Enlightenment period, frankly, if not before. Mm-hmm. So it is, you know, part of what I think is happening is not happening everywhere, right? So there's different types of mindfulness, obviously, and mm-hmm. um, or maybe it's not so obvious, but just to say, right, when people say they're bringing mindfulness into something, of course, then it begs the question of what exactly is being right. brought in. <laughs> yeah. um, but with me and a lot of the people that I work with, uh, definitely it's sort of a uh, an invitation first to begin to 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 make commitments to personal practices that can support both calm and concentration, but also deepening insight into the true kind of nature of what it is that mm-hmm. we're dealing with. And once you move from just calm concentration and um, psychological flexibility and those sorts of more pragmatic um, ways of, of deploying mindfulness and law, and you move into insight, you move into awareness as an awareness of interconnectedness, mm-hmm. um, compassionate reconsideration of what we're doing and how we're doing it seems to arise for many of us. Mm-hmm. And so then it moves into this question of how can we slowly, as best we can, transform the systems that we're in. Mm-hmm. So starting from transforming law school to bring in the relational and, and sort of um, inner dimension, um, but then moving into how it is that we relate with clients and, and community members around conflict, how we um, try and stay present to the larger context within which these injuries arise mm-hmm. um, and stay in relationship beyond the transactional model of the lawyer who just flies in when there's a need to help resolve a problem and then is, is gone. Mm-hmm. But trying to go back to an older view of lawyer as counsel, counselor, a lawyer mm-hmm. as advisor, um, before a problem happens, right? The sort of resource that can help ensure um, well-being before there's a problem. So, so I guess what I'm saying is, for many people who really stay with the project of bringing mindfulness to law, lots of things open up. Uh, certainly, again, I think these are more on the margin than in the mainstream, mm-hmm. but certainly on the margin and, and amongst those of us who teach and really. Um, reflect deeply on what it is we're trying to do with bringing mindfulness in, questions about how we might ultimately start to shift and open the sort of um, the sense of the possible when it comes to what our legal system might do. So how can we bring human dignity back in? How can people who are being processed through the system, who may need to be held accountable in some formal way, but can we do that in a way that respects deeply the humanity of every person in the system? Wow. And so, yeah, so really trying to slowly, I mean, it's a huge, formidable system. Mm-hmm. So we're not changing anything overnight here. Mm-hmm. But the idea and the hope is that if we can, starting with ourselves, bringing a sense of what I call personal justice mm-hmm. to, right, to the day-to-day being in the system, 
from there, really being able to see more clearly what harms are being done, not just by the so-called perpetrators in these systems, but by every actor in Mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. And how can we minimize that harm that we do? How can we reduce the suffering? And what does that suggest for how to change, not just ourselves, but the systems we're in? Well, actually, there are a couple of uh, things I want to ask about that. Um, uh, one is, you know, when you said something um, in, in your very beautiful description of this vision of this possibility and something about before the harm is done, you know, the attorneys. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my first thought was, I'm so terrible, was who's going to pay you for that? <laughs> you know, so just like in the right. medical system, people say quite correctly, we don't have a health system, we have an illness system, mm-hmm. you know. And so then I was thinking, without the breakdown yeah. in the societal expectations or without the so-called mm-hmm. criminal act, you know, where does the lawyer fit in? <laughs> who pays for that? Well, the question of who pays is right on time. We're in a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, but but actually, but from a kind of a, I mean, we know from the traditions uh, on which we draw for this work, you know, I mean, it calls into question the mm-hmm. whole tendency to monetize. And mm-hmm. so, so, so we have a foot in all kinds of different yeah, you know, we have, yeah. we We're in this world where people have to get paid and all of that. And of course, our students who come to law school mm-hmm. um, come because they want a profession that will mm-hmm. help enable them to make a living mm-hmm. in a world, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and yet, and yet, and yet, I mean, I guess when you recognize that as a member of our profession, you are taking an oath to serve I mean, you know, mm-hmm. again, this brings up all kinds of ways of really looking at the disconnect between what it is that lawyers are um, sort of privileged to be able to do on behalf of society as mm-hmm. a profession, right? We actually are sworn to, in our various states and state bars and all the ceremonies, I mean, we are taking on a particular role, a public service role on behalf and in behalf, on behalf of the system, in behalf of um, communities, on behalf of communities, mm-hmm. we are, you know, really meant to not be only for ourselves. So we have to do this delicate balance of needing to take care of ourselves, but but also needing to have some kind of what traditionally is called pro bono um, mm-hmm. recognition that we are not, you know, if all we see is the pathway through which, um, at the end of which there is a payment, Mm -hmm. uh, we are missing something. And that's true. That's true for lawyers, even irrespective of this question of mindfulness and Mm -hmm. compassion Mm -hmm. as a part of it. And so trying to find a way that we can sustain ourselves, but through which we can also be of, of service to those who have no money to pay us Mm -hmm. has always been a part, I think, of the traditional mandate for lawyers. We just don't typically talk about that, especially in contemporary 21st century mm-hmm. United States or around the world when we're so often sort of drawn into, again, this hyper-capitalist sort of sense of mm-hmm. um, the, the necessity to monetize every single thing. So, again, I think the core of our profession has something to say against that way of thinking about mm-hmm. what we have to do. But certainly when you start to bring mindfulness and compassion in, you start to realize that there's going to be an ongoing 
conversation mm-hmm. <laughs> around how to how to serve, you know, and mm-hmm. how to find ways to be of service. Um, some through which you'll get paid, some through which you will not. But that ultimately, overall, make for a meaningful life. It's really beautiful. And the other thing that came to my mind is you said something about um, personal, kind of personal change and system change. Personal justice, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know, so first of all, I really want to know what personal justice is, but <laughs> you know, looking back at my own life as a meditator, you know, somebody mm-hmm. who pursued mindfulness, you know, really very young, and it was it was all about my personal pain, and it yeah. just had to be, you know, because it was so compelling and. I might have been in a situation uh, endlessly chanting, you know, I'm practicing for the sake of all beings, but really not, you know. Like, I mean, it was just something to say, you know. But, um, you know, and and for many people, you know, with significant personal pain, that that is going to be the reality. But there's something about that movement, you know, from uh, being more consumed with one's own situation to – uh, even seeing the, the the need for system-wide change. You know, I think this is not, I don't yeah. think this is something that comes easily in, in, for a lot of people. Like, I think kind-heartedness can and will. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the example I keep using is, you know, like if you're, pro, if you really practice sincerely, you know, mindfulness or whatever, uh, I think your heart mm-hmm. does open and, and, you know, you're approached by someone on the street for some money and you recognize this as a human being, you know, and yeah. and and that's very genuine and unforced. But whether you then think, you know, I wonder what the housing policy is for this city yeah. is another whole question. <laughs> and, and I don't know that it comes from meditation, per se, so much as another kind of education or, or being encouraged to look a certain way. I do agree. I mean, I I used to think more that it would just sort of naturally arise. Mm-hmm. But then I just talked to so many people. Yeah. I've yeah. talked to so many people over the years who have sat for a very long time, who have told me it is never naturally, it doesn't naturally arise to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, that I kind of realize or have come to the belief that, um, that while it might, Right. While sort of sitting and becoming more conscious of the inherent interconnectedness of all things mm-hmm. that for me can arise just by, you know, a conscious reflection on the breath. Mm-hmm. Right. That, mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't create this air. What is this whole business about mm-hmm. breathing um, through which, you know, without which I wouldn't be alive, you mm-hmm. know, for the next five minutes, so to speak. Like, so that I'm in part a part of something that is beyond myself. Is, is some, you know, becomes more apparent uh, for me with every breath. Mm-hmm. And yet moving from there to these deeper questions about, well, how how is it that the, the air is, is safe enough to, for me to breathe and mm-hmm. what are the inputs of that? You know, those questions don't naturally necessarily arise, but I do see they can. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. some of us, they may. But for others, especially, I think it varies it may vary quite a bit depending on how one is introduced to mindfulness and meditation if if it is presented as just that personal practice of mm-hmm. sitting and and you're not often invited to turn toward 
these questions of what it really means to 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 breathe in a world, um, to live in a world, to be able to eat, to be able to um, enjoy peace. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the conditions for that? What are the sort of social conditions for that? Mm-hmm. Um, if we're not invited to reflect on that, and again, I know many people are not in the way that they're introduced to mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not invited to it, you might not get to a deeper sense of that what for me is kind of a, a ongoing dynamic flow from <clears throat> the personal justice work of like working with my own suffering and trying to mm-hmm, alleviate it, mm-hmm. noticing how my brain can make me crazy by constantly turning myself back to these dire thoughts as opposed to letting them go mm-hmm. and making space for what else is here. You know, the joy that's always here, the, the sunlight that's that we're blessed to have mm-hmm. in any given moment. So that that to me, these personal practices, what I often call personal justice, because I think of it as like a way of making a commitment to to my own well-being and to the the you know the work, if you will, the practices that minimize my own suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, to move from that to realizing, okay, well, I don't live in a bubble. I literally every day, thank goodness, really, am interacting with other human beings. Mindful awareness and compassion and empathy um, that begins for me with my own self, you know, not selfishly, but mm-hmm. with self-awareness. Like, if I can't address my own suffering, it's hard to address somebody else. But if I can address my own, then when I'm with someone who is in distress, I have a little bit more to give that person. Mm-hmm. And from there, just recognizing again, what are the conditions that enable myself and others to experience a sense of freedom from distress? Mm -hmm. If, you know, ICE or, you know, the police or Mm -hmm. um, the bill collectors and the people who would evict you are at the door or, you know, will be soon. That's a condition that makes it much, much harder mm-hmm. for folks to maintain well-being. It's not that we can't. We know that people practice in prison and mm-hmm. they practice during mm-hmm. con- in concentration camps. We know this, mm-hmm. sadly. Mm-hmm. But So there's a way in which that personal practice is a resource for whatever may come. And yet, if we can, if we're really you know, engaged with the work of minimizing suffering, uh, John... Um, Powell, a law professor mm-hmm. here out on the West Coast, uh, is among those who talks about the difference between existential suffering that we all as humans may encounter because of the way our mind works and our habits and conditions and patterns, the attachments, the three poisons, right? Mm-hmm. The um, aversion, um, attaching or being confused, right? We all suffer in certain kinds of ways that are common to us as humans. And then there's what's called surplus suffering. Mm-hmm the extra stuff that we as humans devise for each other through systems, through policies, through laws, through community Mm -hmm. practices and cultural ways of being. And, you know, whether and to what extent our mindfulness practices open us up to being aware of surplus suffering Mm -hmm. and being willing to address it there, I guess that varies. But for me, it sort of is a natural, um, it's a natural, evolution, if you mm-hmm. will, or flow. Like, and the more you recognize 
being present to myself that opens me up to being present to other humans, opens me up to the world that we humans are, uh, live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just is, um, for me, uh, just an ongoing waking up to the different ways that suffering shows up and how we can meet it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. So would you like to lead us in a, a short period of personal justice practice? Yes. <laughs> Let's do this. Okay. Yeah, so if we, wherever we are, really consciously allow, invite, a kind of settling into this moment, bringing the attention to the, the body in this moment. So whether you're standing or sitting, lying down, however you find the body in this moment, really allowing attention to rest on the sensations of being alive as an embodied being right here, right now. with the intention of bringing kindness to the experience, really noticing the position of the body, perhaps the points of contact between the body and the floor in this moment. And as we bring attention to the body, Notice the sensations of breathing in the body right now. So picking up on the in-breath or on the out-breath, wherever you happen to rest the attention. And really seeing if you can continue to follow along. Noticing the sensations of completing the cycle, beginning, breathing in. Noticing that point where you shift into the the out-breath. And perhaps in the next cycle, seeing if you can take a few very, take a deep breath. And now... Exhaling, seeing if you can exhale just a little bit longer than you breathe in. Now just simply resting in the sensations of breathing in a way that feels easeful, natural. And as you breathe in and out, sensing into the stillness in motion that can arise when we settle into a few moments of mindfulness meditation practice. The body in a position of relative stillness, and yet the sensations of breathing, the rising and falling 
of the organs as we breathe in and out. Noticing, if we will, the other parts that may also be moving, thoughts that may be arising, emotions that might be coming as you sit. And so with gentleness, allowing whatever is present to be here. With kindness. Recognizing that you are in this moment, alive, and that as you're breathing in and out, there is inevitably much that is right with you. So even if there is some pain, whether physical or emotional, see if you can recognize what is there, breathing in and out. And recognizing what else might be there. Is there calm? Is there peace? Is there a sense of what is well within you in this moment? Allowing yourself, perhaps on the next in-breath, to really breathe in awareness of what is well with you in this moment. And on the out-breath, just sort of letting go, deeply dropping into the sense of what is well. And resting in awareness. So as we draw these few moments of meditation to a close, might invite a kind of a conscious embrace of some aspect of what you'd like to carry forward from this practice into the next part of your day. Perhaps an intention to pause from time to time sense into what the body might need. It might need water. It might need calm. It might need a few minutes of silence. It might need to call and contact a friend. So see if in the next few moments something arises that you'd like to identify as an intention to carry forward some way of staying in contact with what the body needs for just kind support on your journey today. May you be well as we draw this to a close, invite you to in whatever way is natural and normal for you re-engage with this present moment 
and all that lies before you as you move into the rest of your day. May you be well. May you be at peace. May you be filled with loving kindness. Oh, thank you so much. I think I'm going to put you on a loop. <laughs> Just listen to you all day. What a great idea. That was wonderful. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is really, really beautiful to be with you. On you as well. So um, to learn more about Rhonda's work, you can follow her on Twitter at at RV McGee. That's that little at symbol, R-V-M-A-G-E-E. You can go to her website, RhondaVMcGee.com. That's R-H-O-N-D-A-V-M-A-G-E-E dot com. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.